From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For peace activists on the front lines, anti-Asian violence is inextricably linked to the history of U.S. imperialist wars. That is a long-standing tradition of U.S. militaristic policy and foreign policy towards Asia and the Pacific for the last hundred years. And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, author Roberto Lovato on the deadly legacy of U.S. colonialism in Central and South America. I've seen this terror that drives people to leave their homes. What would it take for you to leave your home? It would be terror. People don't come here for any American dream anymore. There ain't no American dream. Let's just face that. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for March 19, 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, the United States history of racism and imperialist wars is catching up with it abroad and at home. Months of mounting hate crimes against Asian Americans, fueled by former President Donald Trump's anti-China rhetoric, culminated this week in the slaughter of eight people including six Asian women in Georgia. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin kicked off a summit in Asia, ratcheting up a new Cold War against China. In Korea, Blinken spoke about the murders in Georgia. We're horrified uh, by this violence, which has no place uh, in America or anywhere, uh, for that matter. Uh, And I want to offer our deepest condolences to the families and friends uh, of those who died, uh, and to everyone in the uh, in the Korean community who was shaken and deeply disturbed uh, by this incident, uh, we are as well, uh, and we will stand up uh, for uh, the right of our uh, fellow Americans and Korean Americans uh, to be safe, uh, to be treated with uh, with dignity uh, and respect. With his comments, Blinken and the war complex he represents seems to be banking on the amnesia of Americans so that we don't see the hypocrisy in his words about violence as he stands on the soil of Korea where the United States invaded and killed more than 2 million people as he stands in the region of Vietnam where the United States killed more than 3 million people including up to 500 men, women, and children slaughtered, many raped, mutilated, and burned alive in the village of My Lai on March 1968. Christine Ahn, executive director of Women Across DMZ and coordinator of Korea Peace Now, tweeted in response to Blinken's statement that, quote, the U.S. has no problem waging violence against Asians through its forever wars and military occupation. Biden should do the right thing and end the U.S. oldest war with North Korea. That would help mitigate the jingoism and orientalism against Asian Americans, which fuels violence. End quote. 
delving deeper into the link between the legacy of the Korean War and anti-Asian violence, journalist Tim Sharrock tweeted that between the end of the Korean War and the 1990s, more than a million Korean women were caught up in a state-controlled prostitution industry that was blessed at the highest levels by the U.S. military. In his article, Welcome to the Monkey House, Confronting the Ugly Legacy of Military Prostitution in South Korea, Chirac details how the U.S. military prostitution system in South Korea was modeled on the Japanese military's sexual enslavement of Korean women during World War II. Christine Ahn is among the women who are speaking out, drawing connections between U.S. militarism in Asia with its hundreds of U.S. bases, violence against women, and human sex trafficking. She participated Thursday night on a panel, The Feminist Case for a Peace Agreement to End the Korean War. After the panel, I reached her by phone in Hawaii. I just think that it's really important for us to be making those linkages to not just view this as some kind of hate crime because just racism exists in this country. Of course it exists, but it is built on genocide. It is built on slavery, but it is also built on the imperial forays of U.S. empire and the belief that we can just drop bombs, we can drop atomic weapons, we can splatter napalm or Agent Orange across fields, forests, coral reefs, oceans, and women's bodies. I mean, I just think, you know, of course, that dehumanization is, of course, going to be carried back by the very soldiers that commit those acts of violence against Asian lives. So it is this kind of feedback loop. And I just think this is a moment for us to realize that there is a historic precedent that undergirds this this anti-Asian violence. And we have to take responsibility for ending that kind of provocative rhetoric and ending U.S. militarism and empire. And I think breaking this legacy down and seeing the ways in which, you know, what is undergirding this racism and the anti-Asian violence, that's, for me, an important conversation to be had at this moment. That was Christine Ahn, Executive Director of Women Cross DMZ and Coordinator of Korea Peace Now. And for more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, whose latest book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, we've been discussing this brewing Cold War with China for several years now, it seems. and. It looks like during this week with this Austin Blinken trip abroad to Asia, new requests for military encirclement of China, and these horrific murders in Georgia, that things are kind of coming to a head. Well, I'm glad you linked the Atlanta crisis with this new Cold War. I think that's particularly appropriate. Just like the anti-Mexican rhetoric of the previous U.S. president, was linked to the killing of Mexican-Americans in El Paso, Texas, some months ago. I think it's fair to say that what we're seeing now with regard to Asian-Americans, Chinese-Americans in China, is reminiscent of what happened before World War II with regard to anti-Japanese sentiment 
And we all know that that wound up with 120,000 Japanese Americans interned in concentration camps and atomic weapons dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in August 1945. I think it's fair to say that there is a segment of Euro-American public opinion that does not take kindly to global challenges, least of all from Asia. And I'm also afraid to say that uh, some of our Chinese and Chinese-American and Asian-American friends are not very helpful. I'm thinking of the two Korean-American representatives from Orange County, California, who are Republicans, uh, Young Kim and Michelle Steele, who carry quite a bit of water for the Republican right and apparently does not recognize that that only helps to whip up anti-Asian sentiment that was manifested most recently in Atlanta, Georgia. It's like trying to be friends with the pyromaniacs and the firefighters simultaneously. I think it's also fair to say that China will not be mute when it comes to this new Cold War, because even as the mainstream press has come to recognize, China feels it's in the passing lane, and it's given China quite a bit of confidence. Indeed, my understanding is that in light of this Alaska summit and Secretary of State Blinken raising the question of Hong Kong and Uyghurs and Taiwan and all the rest, China will be raising the question of the human rights of black people. And in fact, I understand at a high level, a Chinese representative has denounced the United States for, quote, slaughtering, unquote, black people in the United States. And one of the questions that's on the table right now is how will the black American leadership respond? Will they lean into that criticism or will they run away from it in fear that it will alienate the ruling elite base that some think they're cultivating? I think that part of the problem right now is the structural problem whereby the Biden coalition, which is heavily dependent domestically on the black vote, is also aware of the fact that since the uh, attack on Paul Robeson for his foreign policy positions, that many black leaders have steered clear of foreign policy, but that only gives the Democrats more leeway and latitude to get involved in misadventures, such as the Libyan fiasco of 2011 under Barack Obama, and what is amounting to this new Cold War, which is only going to drain tax dollars from health care and education, pour money into the Pentagon, thereby jeopardizing the life chances of people in our community. And even more dangerous is the fact that at the same time the United States is confronting China, it's confronting Russia simultaneously. Uh, you might have seen this ABC News interview where Mr. Biden accused Mr. Putin of being a, quote, killer, unquote, which led to Moscow recalling its ambassador. And in that context, pay careful and close attention to the fact of closer cooperation between Moscow and Beijing, up to and including building together a lunar station on the moon. Now, the question I think we need to pose is that who from the Black Caucus or the Progressive Caucus will walk into the Oval Office at the White House and break the news to Mr. Biden that his foreign policy line is fundamentally misguided. As always, we'll keep a watch on this issue of war and peace. I've been speaking with historian and prolific author Gerald Horn. 
Back in the U.S., the Poor People's Campaign is the most vocal among grassroots organizations refusing to let the plight of poor and low-wealth Americans, nearly half of the population, be forgotten. The Poor People's Campaign held protests across the country on Monday, March 15th, to keep the pressure on the Biden administration to enact major permanent legislation during his first 100 days, not just the temporary measures in the just-passed American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, which will expire in the coming months. And they are pressuring state lawmakers to defeat the more than 250 laws proposed by Republicans across the country designed for voter suppression. These rallies were part of the Poor People's Campaign weekly Moral Monday actions, and they went to state capitals to lay out their 14 points needed for working people in this country. Those 14 points include enacting comprehensive and just COVID-19 relief that provides free testing, treatment, vaccines, and direct payments to the poor, guaranteeing quality health care for all regardless of any pre-existing conditions, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour immediately, updating the poverty measure, guaranteeing quality housing for all, enacting a federal jobs program to build up investments, infrastructure, public institutions, climate resilience, energy efficiency, and socially beneficial industries and jobs in poor and low-income communities, and redirecting the bloated Pentagon budget toward these priorities as matters of national security. Here in D.C., I cover the Poor People's Campaign action at the Wilson Building, which is sort of like D.C.'s City Hall, and if we were a state, it would be our state capital. But anyway, in addition to the national 14 points, each rally in each state included demands particular to that state. In D.C., there is a demand for statehood and to support the residents of Brookland Manor in their fight to keep affordable housing for families. These are two organizers, Liz McNichol of the Poor People's Campaign and Minnie Elliott of Brooklyn Manor. These 14 policy priorities are constitutionally consistent, morally defensible, and economically sane. They come out of the lives, struggles, agency, and insights of the 140 million and their moral, economic, and legal allies. We need more people in Washington, D.C. to march with the Poor People Campaign. And we need to go into the communities and educate them and let them know what it's all about. Now, from the streets in Washington to the suites, it looks like the Senate may alter recent filibuster procedures in order to bypass Republican obstructionism and pass the For the People Act, which expands voting rights and reduces the influence of money in politics We'll continue to cover that proposed law. As jury selection is almost complete in the trial of Derek Chauvin, charged with murder in the death of George Floyd last May in Minneapolis, activists around the country rallied on March 13th to mark the one-year anniversary of the death of emergency medical technician Brianna Taylor, who was shot to death in her home by Louisville police. In D.C., a new report sheds light on how police handled protesters on one of the most controversial days of last year's uprising against racism. Chantel James has more. The ACLU D.C. has completed and released its report on an important incident that occurred on June 1st 
during the height of the uprisings against George Floyd's death, when the Metropolitan Police Department kettled protesters and made over 200 arrests. The events detailed in the report represent pivotal moments in D.C.'s protest over police abuses over the summer. The report comes after the ACLU D.C. has already filed a lawsuit on behalf of Black Lives Matter D.C. and other plaintiffs against the Trump administration and MPD for actions earlier that day on June 1st at Lafayette Square and is in ongoing legal proceedings against MPD for MPD's failure to meet the requirements to report stop-and-frisk incidents in the district. We spoke with legal director Scott Michaelman about the Swan Street report. On the night of June 1st, there were protests throughout Washington, D.C., as there had been throughout the country and throughout that week following the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Earlier in the evening, a group of nonviolent civil rights protesters were met with overwhelming force by federal and D.C. officers in and around Lafayette Square across from the White House. Now, many of these people then walked to other parts of the city to protest, and some came from other places as well and found themselves in the U Street neighborhood of Northwest D.C. There, the cops started following various groups of people, even though the people were not threatening anyone, were not engaging in any violence or anything that should have been a cause for concern. Now, there was a curfew on that night that the mayor had implemented. And so they were violating the curfew, but that was all. Now, for some reason, and and we still do not know why, the D.C. police that night decided to kettle about 200 people, that is kettling, uh, grouping together, pressing together in, in a confined, detained space on a narrow residential street called Swan Street, just off of 14th Street, south of U. And on that street, tear gas was used, The protesters were detained for some time. A number of them were zip-tied rather tightly. Some of their masks were pulled down when they were arrested so that they were not able to protect themselves from COVID. And ultimately, nobody was charged with anything more than a curfew violation. So we wrote this report in conjunction with our partners, the law firm Sidley Austin and the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, to ask some fundamental questions about the police behavior that night, including their exercise of what appears to be terrible judgment. Why on earth would you round up and shove together 200 people who are doing nothing but breaking curfew just in order to cite them for curfew violations? Why would you detain those people for up to 10 hours? Why would you take off their masks? Why would you deploy pepper spray? And why did you think they were such a threat to begin with? There are MPD statements about cars burning and the like. We talked to over 50 witnesses. They saw nothing of the kind in that part of the city. And, you know, it goes without saying that some kind of concern about some other part of D.C. does not justify arresting 200 people on Swan Street. So we're very concerned about this and really think the council should look into it. I was hoping you might go into some of the highlights and the major takeaways from the report with me. So a a couple of things about the police response to the peaceful civil rights protests in the Swan Street area stand out. First, that it was the police who escalated the situation. The protesters, by their own accounts and by the accounts of eyewitnesses, were just exercising their rights to make their message heard about civil rights, about police brutality, about the importance of, of black lives. And the only 
hint of law breaking again aside from the curfew violation were you know a couple of bottles of water that were thrown by members of the crowd who were then admonished by other members of the crowd so the crowd was really policing itself to keep keep itself peaceful and so there was no reason for mpd to escalate the situation that's first now second the only thing that anyone on swan street was cited for that night was a curfew violation so all the things that MPD has said, suggesting that there was some kind of threat, some kind of other violence, property destruction just around the corner related to this arrest is really debunked by that. Because if you've got people who are actually engaged in serious unlawful conduct, you're not just going to give them citations for curfew violations and ultimately release them. If they were going to do that 10 hours later, why didn't they do that before kettling people? Why didn't they just hand out citations and tell everyone to go home? And then third, I think there's a real concern about the inattentiveness to the COVID pandemic. This was June. The pandemic was already in full swing. We had sued the D.C. government twice already for its failures to take uh, appropriate precautions for detained individuals at the D.C. jail and at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. So by this point, D.C. was well on notice that they had to think about COVID in the context of law enforcement. So my question is, why are you pulling people's masks down? Why are you affirmatively exposing them to more danger in the way you handle this protest? Almost like they're weaponizing the pandemic against protesters. That's right. We've seen people risk their lives, literally, in a pandemic to come out and make their voices heard, to exercise their free speech rights and let people know the importance of respecting black lives, of ending police brutality. And when they've done that, they've simultaneously taken steps to protect themselves as much as they can by keeping their marches outside, by using masks and, where possible, social distancing. But MPD in deciding unnecessarily to arrest this group of 200 people ended up lumping them all together in many cases in confined spaces, dozens of people in a room where they were ultimately held at the police academy, and also taking off their masks and not replacing them so that the measures that the protesters had carefully taken to protect themselves while engaging in this protest activity would be undercut. You've been hearing from Scott Michaelman, legal director of the ACLU DC. DC Police Union Chairman Greg Pemberton responded to the Swan Street report with a statement claiming that it had left out pertinent details, to which the ACLU DC has responded with its own statement on the veracity of its methodology, including interviews with over 50 witnesses. You can read the full report titled, Protests During Pandemic, D.C. Police Kedling of Racial Justice Demonstrators on Swan Street at the ACLU's website, aclugc.org. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, in culture and media, this week in history marks three infamous days for America's wars. As I mentioned, on March 16, 1968, the My Lai Massacre occurred when American soldiers murdered 504 Vietnamese men, women, and children. Although 25 U.S. Army officers were later charged with complicity in the massacre and subsequent cover-up, only one was convicted and later pardoned by President Richard Nixon. March 19, 2003 was the start of the American invasion of Iraq. 
that toppled former U.S. ally and Iraqi President Saddam Hussein from power. Although Baghdad was taken in just 21 days, the brutal subjugation and occupation of the country was just beginning. Three years to the day, after invading Iraq, the U.S. military confirmed, contrary to initial reports, that American Marines had killed 24 civilians, mostly of the same family in Haditha, Anbar province. Only one soldier eventually stood trial for the killings, but was convicted on a single count of negligent dereliction of duty in 2012, avoiding any jail time. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Gotta pay attention to the signs. Seem like the fines following the blind. Thinking about everything that's going on. I put security up in my home. I'm with my count, they right or they wrong. I call him now, he'll pick up the phone. It's five in the morning, he waking up on it. Tell him wherever I'm in and they coming. I see blue lights, I get scared and start running. That's be crazy, they post to protect the stores in handcuffs and arrest us. But they go home and messed up. No one we need to help, they neglect us. One of them who gon' make them respect us. I can see in your eyes that you're fed up. Mess around, got my shot, I won't let up. I know that we a problem together. They know that. We can start with it. And it's big and it's black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life. Can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere. Might as well go on here. Start here. We didn't have a love a year. I'm gonna make it count while I'm here. God is the only man I fear. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mall Monday. And this is our National Mall Monday. Standing against voter suppression and standing for a moral agenda. And we are all over the country. That's how we roll. We recognize that we need a movement that, from the bottom up, nationalizes state movements, and that's what we're doing today. And you'll be hearing from people all over the country. We connect the fight for voting rights with the fight for economic justice, the fight for health care. They're all connected, fusion. Talk to us, Arkansas. Hey, I'm Josiah Matthews from Arkansas, today we gathered in Little Rock with a powerful group to place our 14 policy demands before the governor and state legislator and demand they take a stand against voter suppression for a moral agenda. And my brother, can I ask you, are y'all committed out there to not be silent anymore? We're not going to be silent. We're going to use our voice as a weapon. They have raged war against the poor and we're going to use our voice to practice guerrilla warfare. Uh. Well, we're going to do nonviolent. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's put it like that. Amen. Massachusetts. Massachusetts up north. Yes, sir. Uh, Hey, my name is Vaughn. I'm here in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Today we gathered at the state house with a powerful group to place our 14 policy demands before the governor and state legislature and demanded that they take a stand against voter suppression. And also we talked about something which is very important, and that is housing because housing is almost unobtainable here and for a moral agenda. Also got Maria Colville on, who's a PCA personal care attendant who who speaks out also. Maria? Hi, everyone. My name is Maria Colville. And today we gathered with a powerful group to place the 14 policy demands before the governor and demanded that they take a stand against voter suppression and for a moral agenda. Thank you so much for Massachusetts. Kentucky, Tanya, talk to us. Tanya, coming out of Kentucky, home of the dreadful Mitch McConnell and the dreadful House and Senate 
led Republicans. They are in session right now voting on terrible, terrible voter suppression bills. They are voting on the fact that they're going to close some precincts. We need the nation down here in Kentucky uh, to walk with us hand in hand. It is immoral. The people have spoken. They spoke up and they said the way that we voted in 2020, that brought out a record number of people who were voting. We had more voters in 2020 than we ever had in our voting history to come out at one time. And so right now in our legislative body, they are voting to close precincts. They're voting to shorten the mail-in ballot dates. They're voting to not keep precincts open. That is immoral. It is wrong. And we will not give up. And the best thing that we can do for everybody that's in Kentucky, let's vote these immoral people out of that office. I'm an impacted person. It took me a long time to get my voting rights back. And I am here to help and advocate for others. We have over 170,000 people right now that could register to vote, but they cannot because of Kentucky's law. And uh, it's immoral, Pastor. It is immoral. But we had a big day at the Capitol. I know you did. And Tony, you know what? What they don't understand is we, we understand that the reason they don't want you to vote, because when you all did, you put a governor in place and then he opened up health care and he decided to end. They understand that we vote right, we get economic justice. And so I suspect, I mean, what I know of Kentucky, the more they try to stop you, the more you're going to fight to do it. You, you, you better know. believe it. When we leave, we're going to have cloud marks all over them. And here's what I'm saying. You are right. We change the narrative when people are able to vote. And we do have things that happen. And you know what? They got so mad, they try to impeach our governor. Uh-huh. Well, that's all right. Y'all keep doing what you're doing. And every time they push us back, they don't know. We like a we, we like one of those... um. Uh, uh, weebles wobble, but we don't fall down. But we down. don't fall down. <laughs> but we don't fall down. <laughs> Take care. You have been listening to the Reverend William Barber and many voices from the Poor People's Campaign after holding protests across the country on Monday, March 15th to keep the pressure on the Biden administration to enact major permanent legislation during his first 100 days. These rallies went to state capitals to lay out their 14 points of action needed for working people in this country. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. And you sit down house and couch and watch it on TV. The most you get is a Twitter rant, call it a tragedy. But truly the travesty, you've been robbed of your empathy. Replaced with apathy, I wish I could magically. That's what with the future, so then you can face it and see how messed up it'll be. The Gregory told me a couple of secrets before he lay down in his grave. All of us serve the same masters, all of us nothing but slaves. And never forgetting the story of Jesus, the hero was killed by the state. Yeah, it's bigger than black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life, it can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here. We done had a love but yeah, I'ma make it count while I'm here. God is the only man I fear. It's a problem with the whole way of life, it can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here. We done had a love but yeah, I'ma make it count while I'm here. God is the only man I fear. This is On the Ground.
OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, we feature an interview with the journalist Roberto Lovato, whose critically praised memoir, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, provides a first-person perspective on the impact of U.S.-backed dictatorships and massacres in Central and South America and the refugees continuing to flee to the U.S. border from unlivable conditions largely created by the U.S. He spoke to David Whetstone of WPFW, Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. Everybody remembers those images of those militarized police in Portland that got out of a van, an anonymous van. They didn't have their names on their, their badges or anything, their badge numbers or names. And they were dressed in military fatigues. They got out of the van and they snatched the protesters off the street and disappeared them. Right? Without reading them their rights or anything. Well, people here read that one way. I read it another way because those were what they call BORTAC, which you have to be a journalist geek on immigration policy like me. And my friend Todd Miller, who's one of the country's top experts on the border patrol and on borders. This is the, the basically the SWAT units of the militarized border patrol. And they were trained in a place called the School of the Americas, which mm-hmm. is the training center for all those killers in Argentina, Augusto Pinochet, the Rios Montt, the genocidal murder of hundreds of thousands of indigenous people in Guatemala, uh, Somoza in Nicaragua. You can go on and on. The current Mexican military that's disappearing and killing its own people by the thousands, which we're not being told. And sadly, it was Barack Obama that sent those Border Patrol agents to this place that trained the same death squads that were in anonymous vans, dressed like military, that pursued me. <laughs> so, and let's be clear about that. So the pretense is not just military to military, but actual police forces are being trained on heavily militarized techniques that are meant to obliviate, annihilate, disappear, Really perverting a phrase by any means necessary. Coming, yeah, you, coming to a neighborhood near you, of course. You were telling me before we, we started the interview that uh, a major segment of your audience is the black community in, in D.C. And I mean, anybody in the black community, anybody watching what happened in the black community knows these things about U.S. policing and what they do to people and how they did it, the history of it. Maybe what people don't know, however, is that there's actually an El Salvador connection to Black Lives Matter. When you have Black Lives Matter fighting the militarization of police that's murdering people, they're fighting an actual Salvadoran model of policing that started during the war in the late 70s, early 80s. They sent Pentagon trainers to train the militaries and death squads of El Salvador. When those trainers finished their duty and the U.S. trainers finished their they're called to duty, a call of duty, whatever the hell these right-wing, you know, military terms are. Where did they send them next? They sent them to LAPD, to NYPD, to police departments, Portland, across the United States, to start the process that we many now recognize, like my friend Stuart Schrader and other, you know, uh, students of policing, that will tell you is like the militarization of the police. In the 80s, you get SWAT. And then you get today these RoboCop uniforms are all puffed up militarily and put in fatigues. Well, that's not just happening out of some 
Darwinian organic growth of the police. That's actually policies that were thought out that included like Salvadoran training, including people like William Barr, who when he after the LA riots where I was I was in the I was there during the LA riots in ninety two, he started the process of deploying the biggest redeployment of FBI forces in US history at the time. And so the militarization of the police, the excuse they used for it were gangs. Salvadoran, but also African American gangs like the Crips and the Bloods in LA. That became the justification for increased militarization of police after the LA riots. And so then then they send the trainers Department of Justice traders back to El Salvador in the post-war period to train the new police that was supposed to kind of be a different kind of police and ended up being the same old SOS. Okay, there we go. <laughs> On that note, allow me to reintroduce you. Listeners, we're joined by Roberto Lovato, who is a journalist and I would dare say one of the leading thinkers on Central American issues, whether it's gangs, refugees, violence, or policy. And he's written his new and first book, and I, I'm going to tip that there's some others coming. It's called Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. We're getting down into what's going on on the ground, both here in the U.S. as our conversation continues and in El Salvador. But I don't want to walk us back too much, but allow me this one moment to say it's always a confluence of many stakeholders in society that empower the things you've just described. And little did I know when I was plotting out interviewing you a few weeks ago that last night the lead story on national news would be, yet again, this kind of uh, pathological addiction in, in uh, its strong language, but almost pornographic obsession with the unaccompanied, undocumented youth that are crossing yeah. the border. And quickly, the frame, no direct blame of the individuals actually doing the journey, but you can say many things by creating a vacuum, by deliberately forgetting. And so you get the dramatic flash of, you know, journalists running up to children, asking them questions, and you never get in that story a sense of what is the main engine? What's driving people to go, as you said earlier, 2,500 miles minimally, uh, ride something called the La Bistia, the, uh, the big train, the big freight train. The beast. The beast, yes. Through many different countries, elderly and young, sadly, are attacked and killed on that journey. And you get none of that. And most importantly, the reason why you're here today is beyond mere representation. You do not see women and men who are journalists or the actual people affected. You don't see their voices. You don't really get a chance to understand their stories. I think you hit on the heart of one of my matters in that book, which is the reason I, one of the reasons I wrote it was the fact that me as a journalist, I'm looking at these reports since 2014 when we really saw it come into the national awareness, even though the story is actually 30 years old or more. Right? I've been watching refugees from Central America come, and I know why they've been coming. I've been in the countryside. You can read in my book. I don't want to get pornographic about the violence because I don't like to trigger people and, or myself because of the things that I've actually seen in living and dead scenes. But I've seen this terror 
that drives people to leave their homes. What would it take for you to leave your home? It would be terrible. People don't come here for any American dream anymore. There ain't no American dream. Let's just face that. So I've traversed 2,500 miles and 30 years of, like I said, war that U.S. sponsored, you know, death squads killed during the war 80,000 people, 85% of the 80,000, okay? 85% according to the United Nations Truth Commission, which was nonpartisan, you know, international judges who saw the evidence, visited the mass grave sites, etc., and determined that the U.S.-backed government had perpetrated this. So then when you're in that situation, you have a choice, fight or flight. Well, a lot of your audience know Salvadorans in D.C., one of the major Salvadoran cities. And you know that our people are not cowards. You know that Salvadorans will throw down. One of every three of us was organized against the state. Not all were guerrillas like me or others, but, you know, in different ways. They joined the opposition to the fascist military dictatorship that the U.S. sponsored. So then, you know, after the war, I mean, the new enemy, the new communist, become gangs, the excuse to continue militarization. If I'm talking, in fact, like you tell me to a, a predominantly or significantly black audience, you're going to understand policing very clearly that policing comes about because, it, and we spend all this money in these city budgets, and we need an excuse. We need a bad guy, you know, increasing the And you need a red button to push. You need to push need people's a red button. buttons. So I don't need to tell anybody in the black community what that is, because in this country, you know better than any of us what that is and how our people are used to justify militarizing our communities and militarizing countries. Same thing in countries. And the thing now is that, and this is one of the points in my book, is that as you look inside of the United States, I had a professor at Berkeley, Manuel Castells, tell me one time, like, watch, the United States, this guy's brilliant, like super brilliant. He said, parts of the United States are going to start resembling the global south. So let's just go to Detroit, like I have, or let's go to New Orleans, like I have, after Katrina, right? The willingness of elites to abandon entire cities is upon us, entire peoples. And so when they do that in Latin America or Africa, like AFRICOM, that has a strong military presence in Africa, regardless of who's president, right? You're basically doing the old colonial thing to police people into submission, and so the same logic, we're seeing it now with the militarization of our police. They've emptied out the welfare state of the United States, abandoned entire cities, entire communities of black, brown, Asian Pacific, you name it. They're abandoning the poor. They're abandoning, dare I say, white people, which is where Fox News and Donald Trump build their business, right? And, the- and allow me the interjection of how that goes down is first step is to make people as angry as heck, you know, to really traumatize them, to to implement what sophisticates call the shock doctrine, which obviously destroys not only a nuclear sense of family, but any sense of family or community. And, and as you said, this is what colonialism does. Yep. I want to say your book on forgetting also, you've talked about spanning this sense of time, being a kind of a science fiction type of person, you kind of span the space-time continuum. You know, you, you've just acknowledged the 19th century establishment of El Salvador. Uh, one of the first moves for people who weren't living on that land was to take away cooperative land from indigenous people. And uh, you can tell us about 
at least two major people groups that you know populated El Salvador. One being the Mayans, and the other I, I'm not sure the proper pronunciation, but I'll I'll give it a try. Uh, Nahue. You have Pipil Nahua, you have Lenka yes. peoples, you have Chorti. There's a lot of different peoples in this tiny country that's the size of Massachusetts. There were entire different, there were Afro Salvadorans. There still are. But what happened in 1932, one of the seminal moments in Salvadoran history, the moment El Salvador becomes a de facto military dictatorship, the longest standing military dictatorship probably in the Americas, which means probably in the world. Which so means. Several cycles, several generations of violence. Am, am I right about that? Several generations of violence. And think about several generations of family structures being dismantled, terrorized, silenced over decades. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, your government, the United States government, supported that dictatorship right after it was established. Initially, they, they said, we're not going to recognize it. And remember, it was established with something called La Matanza in 1932, which killed somewhere on the order, we don't know, but between 10,000 to 20, 30, maybe 50,000 people in what scholars at Oxford, like a gentleman named Anders Sandberg at Oxford. Anders Sandberg, when I interviewed him, told me this thing that just made my head, you know, speaking of my sci-fi self, remember Scanners, that movie where that dude's head blows up? That happened to me. I had my head blow up when he told me, he showed me these maps and it was like, well, look, he was mapping the most violent episodes of the modern era, which means the most violent episodes in world history because the modern ability to kill has been technologized and expanded. So he had like the Ottoman, the Armenian, killing our Armenian peoples, the World War II, World War One. But there's this one little dot above all of them. And that dot was, drumroll, El Salvador, 1930. Holy Blank. Yeah, and let's say it again. La Matanza, 1932, mm-hmm. El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Imagine police just, not police, but police, military, and citizen militias, which you'll talk about later, I'm sure. Esquad, Esquadrones de la Muerte. Yes. They all roll up, and they take out hundreds and thousands of people at a time. And usually it's ritualized. If your family... And I, I'm not going to get graphic and trigger people either, but you are executed in the most horrible ways in front of family members. So you were mentioning something earlier, and I, I just kind of jumped in here. You can't get away from a convergence of stakeholders, different aspects of societies and people. And the U.S. part of this, you're in the Bay Area, like Folgers Coffee and Hilbert Brothers Coffee, in 1939, had a very significant interest in, in one of the major products of your country. Coffee was consumed, I think I've got this right for this year, according to your book, 1.5 billion pounds, 45 billion cups of coffee per year. So the stakes are high as far as greed and money to interest. And there was a quote in one of their advertisements saying uh, bad coffee beans are discarded and destroyed for better beans. And I just think that kind of sensibility, that kind of sentiment is very present with us Well, to this day. We're in the United States right now where it's very clear that 
the country is willing to discard entire groups of people. It's been clear for a long time, but it's becoming clear to those that maybe didn't know history, <laughs> right? So that there were disposable people in El Salvador. They were indigenous primarily, Afro-descended. There were a lot of Afro-descendants in the coffee-growing regions where my father's from. And just as an aside, what happened to Afro-Salvadorans was that they were basically made illegal. That's not news, but in El Salvador, it was like they pushed either the people to leave or they pushed Afro-descended identity underground. So, so to speak. you had no citizenship, and indigenous identity. no identity. Black indigenous folk, and black folks were pushed below. You know, it was dangerous to be that and to admit it, to wear indigenous clothing, for example. Like my great-grandmothers and others, they basically put away their indigenous Close. And there is born this idea of the thing called campesino, the peasant, right? Because you look at the birth records in my dad's hometown, like I did. Before La Matanza in 1932, most of the babies are Indio, quote-unquote, which is a, a racist term, but that's what they used. After 1932, most of the children born are called campesino, this word that the state is starting to, you know, it's like Hispanic for us many, you know, like they, the state creates all these terms to divide us and to slice and dice us after, you know, they perpetrate the terrors that they do. So, yeah, El Salvador in 32 was an intense place. And I, I happen to have, as you know, a personal connection to this. In Depression-era El Salvador, uh, which brought about La Matanza, right? Because, like in Rwanda, you have economic decline in the world bringing about genocide often. You saw this in Ukraine in the 30s, Haiti in 1936, because of the Dominican dictator Trujillo. So in the 30s, my father and my grandmother were growing up in a Depression-era El Salvador that made Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath look like a wine festival, right? It was so devastating, the poverty. And so and my dad, like, you know, grew up with this extreme poverty and then having witnessed this genocide. He's, and my dad, it turns out, is one of the last living witnesses to one of the most violent acts in world history. What blew my head away, my dad, and, and try to imagine, and I, you know, I'm sure some people in your audience can, try to imagine what it's like to have something so terrorizing that you remain silent for it for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 75 years. 65 years in the case of my dad. Just imagine. Yeah. It's yeah. unfathomable. What's scary about that is you point out that there was a poll taken in 2007, and 75% of those polled in El Salvador did not know about this event. They didn't know about it. Yes. It was in La Prensa Grafica that a report from a university study back then of the memory about La Matanza. People didn't know it because the records were erased, and over time the people that witnessed it died off. And so you have the current president, Nayib Bukele, who is a, basically a neo-fascist. But he's a populist, and he's a Trump ally, and he's about to be on uh, Tucker Carlson talking about gangs, and you watch all the propaganda and lies that they give. You know, but he's playing an old tune of authoritarianism. I hate to break it to anybody in your audience, but I'm afraid we're not going to liberal progressive our way out of the epic moment of crisis that we're in, right? We're simply not going to, sorry if that's news to anyone, but we're going to need something a little like what people like Monsignor Oscar Romero, the patron saint of El Salvador, who was uh, inspired by the P-51 
people's movement the, to take on a different identity. You can see that movie, which is... It killed while conducting mass. Killed while conducting mass by death squads, yeah. like the ones that pursued me. And I knew people that knew him. And so, like Romero, like King, like Malcolm, like Ella Baker, like any of the great figures that we really admire and have posters on. And the book is really about the what I say is the the tenderness that survives yes. the terror. Because you got to have tenderness to really look at the abyss of ourselves, the abyss of people that are otherized, even people called criminals. I had to look at my dad and accept the fact that he was involved in running guns and criminal activity, which I had shame about. And I never thought I would talk about. But in doing so, I was looking into that abyss to rescue not just my dad's identity, but to rescue myself. And I had to look at my own past. And, you know, I had to look at all the things that I saw to basically be able to come out now to everyone now and say, look, the be- one of the best parts of me is a part que fue revolucionario. The part that was a revolutionary that would give his all for a higher purpose. We all have that in us. We have the parents know this. You discover these powers that you never knew you had when you become a parent, right? And so in the same way, the revolutionary in us needs to kind of step up right now. Well, I'm grateful for that, brother. Uh, we've been talking to Roberto Lovato. Uh, his memoir is called Unforgetting. Uh, he talks about hope. Roberto, thank you so much, sir. My pleasure, David. Thank you for inviting me. And journalist Roberto Lovato will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to David Whetstone of WPFW in Washington, D.C. for allowing us to re-air his conversation. Also, thank you to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org, and you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground Show with Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. The music we played this hour included The Bigger Picture by Lil Baby featuring Killer Mike at the 63rd Grammy Awards. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website 
which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.